Well, it was uh, school sports day at St. Nicholas Primary School, and the kids were arranging themselves into pairs for the three-legged race. Now, the key to the three-legged race is very simple. It's all about compatibility. But no one told wee David this. When the kids were told to partner up, he should have gone for someone small like he was, but he grabbed his friend Kevin, affectionately known to the rest of the class as Big Kev. Now, the teacher, as she was uh, tying the legs of these kids together for the race, took one look at them, kind of just shrugged, and then just tied their ankles together to see what happened. But when the gun went off, it ended how every single parent on the sideline thought it would go. It ended in disaster. Poor wee David was pretty much dragged and carried and bundled for about uh, 25 meters. Now, it was a disaster, clearly, because it was a mismatch. Uh, they were totally incompatible. But these two friends, completely different in stature, uh, just didn't see it. Now, the same is true for this Corinthian church. Uh, the Corinthians, as if you've joined us in any point in this letter or know it from your own reading, the Corinthians had essentially paired up with a group of false teachers, but in Paul's view and in God's view, it was a total mismatch. And it was going to end in disaster much more serious than the loss of a race. Paul's pressed home the seriousness of this throughout the letter, giving hints along the way that it's their salvation that's at stake. If they don't return to Paul, they reject not him, but Christ. Now that's catastrophic for salvation. And that's why Paul has been in chapters one and two defending his travel plans and basically defending his integrity to these people, saying, I'm the real deal, so listen. But then from chapter 3 through to this point, he's actually been defending this God-given ministry of his and encouraging them to be reconciled to him. And it, it's wrapped up, this whole section is wrapped up with this stunning defense of genuine gospel ministry with an appeal, untie the tie. Break off the yoke. In short, be reconciled to me separate from them. It's dead simple. Now let's look at this passage together with your Bibles open if you have them. We'll look at it in two points. Make room for us, that's point one. Get rid of them, that's point two. So first of all, make room for us, Paul says, in your hearts. Now this text is like a sandwich, right? Verses 11 to 13 of chapter 6 essentially go with and say the same as chapter 7 verses 2 and 3. Paul is underlining his love for these people at the same time as he is making this frank command not to be yoked with unbelievers, right? But for the moment, this, these two sections that we're looking at show us Paul's heart is open wide to the Corinthians. And it's an absolute delight to see it. He loves them. Look at what it says with me in verse 11. It says that there, that's Paul's and his co-workers' hearts, are open wide, unrestricted, okay? 
In verse 12, he says, we are not withholding our affection from you. And then in chapter 7 and verse 3 insists, you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Now, that's not just something nice to hear. It's actually remarkable to hear, given how they've treated Paul. But Paul, throughout this whole situation, not just this letter, with these rebellious Corinthians, he's been like a good dad persistently loving a rebellious child. But it's also a necessary reassurance for the Corinthians because as Paul says in verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. You could actually translate that frankly. We have spoken frankly to you, Corinthians. And he has. Frank speech can easily be interpreted as something that's spiteful or mean-spirited, isn't it? I mean, someone can say something sternly to us in love, but yet be taken by us as something harsh or demeaning, but it's not necessarily the case. His, Paul's, free-spoken, frank speech is an indicator of his love. But here's where the problem lies in Corinth. While Paul's heart is open to them, the Corinthians' hearts have been closed to Paul. Look what he says in verse 12, we're not withholding our affection from you, but you're withholding your affection from us. In the original Greek, that word basically means it's the opposite to what Paul's is. Paul's heart is wide, theirs is constricted, it's narrow, and that's not good. Paul's love has not been reciprocated. In a sense, the Corinthians are kind of acting like an adulterer, directing love to the wrong person altogether. They've loved the false teachers when they weren't the ones that even brought this gospel of salvation to them in the first place. And they've opened their hearts not only to them, but to idols rather than love Paul who opened their hearts to Jesus. It's crazy. And that's the reason for Paul's frank speech and this very direct appeal. Make room in your hearts for us. Let me ask you, this is one of the key points of application in this passage. Have you made room in your hearts for the Apostle Paul's teaching? I mean, to reject the things that we find in God's Word, to find that we find in the writings of the Apostle Paul, is to reject what the Spirit of God has said. And just as it was for the Corinthians, that's catastrophic for us as well. No matter what justification we seek to give any kind of distancing that we put between ourselves and the teaching of someone like the Apostle Paul, for whatever reason, we must stick with Paul and stick with Jesus. Hold fast and to and stand firmly on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In other words, the Word of God, authoritative, sufficient, clear, as the basis for believing anything that we believe about the Lord God and for our practice, for how we live in daily life, in our personal walk with Jesus, and certainly in our life together as a church. And that's actually a secondary application for us as a church family, even for leaders and members. Isn't it really striking 
How in the midst of all this different kind of arguing of points and realizing, helping them to realize, look, this is what gospel ministry looks like. This is what you should look like towards us. When Paul says, I'm appealing to you, he doesn't say, believe the right thing. Yeah, that is what they have to do. But he says, make room for us in your hearts. It's a call for mutual affection, for open hearts in the local church. Specifically, it makes love the controlling motivation for all gospel leadership. There are many different reasons why people would want to lead in a church, but love is the controlling motivation, according to Paul. And for the gospel to truly thrive in a local church family like ours, Paul says that love ought to be recognized as key to our receptivity to the gospel truths that we hear and the gospel truths that we share as we speak them to one another. If we fail on either or both of these, then actually our gospel ministry is fundamentally hindered. We'll not do the things that Jesus has called us to do. We'll not be the people who He's called us to be and experience what we've been called to experience. We're His. Serving, partnering together in gospel endeavor and doing so loving each other to death. Let's make room in our hearts for gospel truth that we might see gospel growth. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, we are nothing. It's true. It means we need to work hard to maintain healthy, loving relationships, brothers and sisters. To not entertain spite or hatred or bitterness or unforgiveness, but to work by moving towards those to whom we feel those things in order to bring about, well, what we looked at last time, reconciliation. Well, the main thing that Paul wants these guys to do is to make love for him in their hearts based on the love that he has for them and the integrity by which he's performed his ministry. But the second point he's saying is get rid of those who don't belong. That's how you make room for something, isn't it? You know, let's say you're a landlord, you've got a flat that you're going to rent out. Well, you've got to make room for the new tenant. How are you going to do that? Well, you've got to get rid of the old one first. There's eviction involved uh, before you bring in the new folks. Well, it's the same with regard to the love in our hearts. You've got to make room for the right loves by getting rid of the wrong loves. And that's what Paul's encouraging these guys to do in verses 14 through to 7-1. Now, verse 14 acts, if you like, as the headline command for this passage. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. And he'll give a couple of reasons why. But let's look at this command first. Now, you know what a yoke is, I'm sure. A yoke is a harness used in farming to join two animals together in order to, say, plow a field. It's basically designed to double the power and the efficiency of the farming task. But really, it only ever does that if you have the right pairing. There's a text in Deuteronomy 22, actually, that says that you should not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, the reasons should be obvious. If you just picture that in your mind, the reasons should be patently obvious. Why? I mean, an ox is massive, a donkey's smaller, 
But besides the difference in stature, they've just got completely different nature, different strengths, different instincts, just like we, Dave, and Big Kev. But if you don't get the pairing right, what ends up happening? As you plow your field, well, it just makes a mess of your field. It will probably ruin your donkey, and your overall goal will be completely frustrated. Now, that's Paul's point. He's basically saying if you yoke yourself with unbelievers, it'll be disastrous. Because if you yoke yourself with unbelievers, it's a mismatch. Your overall goal to see lives transformed through faith in Jesus Christ will be absolutely frustrated. So the question that we have here as Paul makes this command, don't be yoked with unbelievers, is what kind of partnership does he have in mind? What partnership is Paul actually prohibiting? Even as he's talking here about unbelievers. Well, is he talking about marriage? No, he's not. Not here anyway, though he does talk about that in 1 Corinthians 7. Is he talking about uh, entering into contractual business partnerships? Um, no, he's not. So it is okay to get a non-Christian to put an extension on your house. He's talking specifically about gospel partnership in the local church. And the unbelievers he has in mind here are specifically the false teachers and the disciples who followed after them in Corinth. Now, these guys, these false teachers, didn't show up saying, Hi, uh, my name's Greg, I'm a false teacher, and I'm going to be teaching you a different Jesus today. That's not the way they go about it. It's much more subtle than that. Often they actually personally believe that they are believers and don't see how pernicious and destructive their preaching actually is. They claim to follow Christ. Actually, much like many ministers and Christians that you know in our city would say today. But they've got their own interpretation on this and that teaching from God's word. The worldliness has crept in to the point that they can't possibly believe or stand firm on the kind of things that our culture today would just see as, well, something to vomit over or else hurl insults at. Which basically means that whatever they stand for, whatever they claim to follow in Christ, whatever doctrine, whatever church looks like for them, it's basically squeezed and contorted to fit their own desires. Some might call it a pick and mix gospel. But Paul, for the first time in this letter, having hinted already, calls these guys what they are. He's going to say a lot more about them in chapters 10 to 13. But right here, he calls them out. They're unbelievers. Now imagine what that sounded like to the church members in Corinth who had actually thought, I quite like this guy Greg's teaching. There's something about this. There's more energy and, 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 and it's got a bit of enthusiasm about it. I can follow a guy like Greg. But imagine them hearing the Apostle Paul say, no, Greg's an unbeliever. It would be hard for some of these guys to swallow. I mean, it's the same as imagining yourself saying that to someone who belongs to a liberal church that is, say, as commonly happens, reject the, the idea of a physical Adam. 
or the, or the physical aspect of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Or Jesus didn't just, Jesus didn't rise bodily, he rose in their hearts. That's what many Christians, Christians believe. Can you imagine someone like one of the pastors up here naming a local church near you, one that says it loves Jesus, one that's even full, and saying they're actually unbelievers? Well, it, it makes people feel a little bit comfortable, doesn't it? But perhaps that discomfort is an indication that we are a little more concerned about how we sound to our culture than we are to standing firm on the truth concerning the gospel. It's bold, it's controversial. It doesn't sound good to folks who don't believe the gospel. It, doesn't even, it might not even sound nice to you if you're someone who's here today, you're not a Christian, you're here because your friend says, come and hear about the gospel because it's awesome. It absolutely is. But surely, can I encourage you to see that standing on the conviction of the gospel, the truths concerning Jesus Christ, is much more attractive than being wishy-washy and creating a hodgepodge of different things in order to find an existence that suits, that makes us content. It's impossible to find my encouragement is come to Christ and see what he says. These super apostles in Corinth, they're shown up by the rejection of Paul's teaching for the worldliness that they show and for preaching another kind of Jesus for profit, as we'll see in chapter 11. It's totally crazy. It deserves to be called out. So Paul says, please, Corinthians, you've done really well. You've indicated through Titus that you're starting to turn back. Now come good on your repentance. Don't unite in gospel partnership with those who don't essentially believe the gospel. Untie. It's a mismatch because you are fundamentally different. And then in the rest of this section, he gives us two reasons why. Two reasons. One based on our identity, who they are. One based on our inheritance, what God has said they're going to get. Okay? First of all, identity. He basically says here, what you are makes you incompatible with what they are. Here's the mismatch coming. Okay? So Paul invites them in these verses from 14b through to 16 to answer these five questions. Five questions to determine the possibilities of a matchup of these believers and unbelievers in a local church when he says, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial was, is a, an, an old Hebrew word that means worthlessness. In many Jewish writings, it came to be synonymous with Satan, with the devil, right? So Christ and the devil. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So he's asking all these questions as if to say, what are you? You're different. The gospel has actually 
changed you fundamentally, ex existentially. You are totally different. You used to be steeped in wickedness, darkness, following Satan in unbelief and idolatry. What a state we were in. But now, now you are all of this in Christ, righteous in him, a believer. Wow, gloriously distinct. But of course, the question that Paul asked really wasn't, what are you? The question specifically was, what have you got in common with these people? What partnership is there between these spiritual realities? What's the answer? What's the answer? After three, one, two, three, none. Of course, it's patently obvious. You hardly even need me to stand up here and say it. You're fundamentally different. Therefore, partnership is impossible. The partnership is inappropriate. No matter how polite we like to be about it, it's not going to work. We have nothing in common, no fellowship in common goals, no agreement in common values. It's a mismatch. Reason number two. It's a mismatch because you have a different inheritance. What God has said to you, he has not said to them. What God has promised you, he in no way has promised them. This is what we see in verses 16b through to 7-1, where Paul presents, having given us five questions to consider, he gives us six Old Testament texts just kind of splurged together. I don't have time to go through them all, but in summary, he says two key things. One, you're indwelt by God, and two, adopted by God. First of all, you're indwelt by God. That's what, the that's what the reference to verse 16b says when he's talking about you are this uh, temple of the living God. Now, in Old Testament times, if you ask someone, where does God live? They'd point you to a building. You know, they'd point you to the temple in Jerusalem or to the tabernacle before it. And God himself had said, as he called his people out of slavery, and called them to worship him, or called them out of exile later on in their history, and again, called to worship him, he said, I'm going to live there. I'm going to be right in the heart of my people. They're going to be my people, and I'm going to be their gods, okay? But when Christ came and lived and died, he declared himself to be the new temple. The new temple is his body. And in New Testament times, in this age of Christ that we are in right now, we are then this body of Christ here on earth. That's what Jesus said. You are the body of Christ, Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 12, and each of you are a part of it. Which means if we ask each other, where does God live now? You can actually look at each other and say, there, in you, in you. He lives in us, the body of Christ on earth. But what Paul's highlighting for them here is that this wasn't always the case. They didn't used to be indwelt by God, but now they are, which means they've actually come out of their old dwelling place. They've switched accommodation, in other words. That's why you've got this appeal in verse 17, which says, actually, now that you're indwelt by the living God and are holy, like his temple was set apart to be holy in the past, so come out, be separate. Don't let anything defile you or contaminate. That's what Paul's driving home for the Corinthians. Basically, you can't be in partnership because God lives in you. 
You're inheritors of the, God, of the promises of God who said he'll live with, walk with, and have us as his people. The second thing he says in verse 18 is that I'm going to be a father to you because you're adopted by me. Once we were not his children. In fact, Jesus himself in the gospel of John goes so far as to say that those who are not children of the father are children of the devil. It's that plain. There's no neutral ground and nowhere in between. Now, in verse 18, Paul's highlighting to the church in Corinth and through them to us that God has promised to be a father to us. You start to understand the weight of this then when you think that actually if God is going to live within us and we are accountable to him, if he loves us so much to provide for us as a father does, then it is completely inconsistent for us then to unite ourselves to people who do not, well, who are not welcome in the same house because they haven't professed faith in Christ or who've not been adopted into the family if they're squatting instead. It's a strong word, but that's because it's a desperate situation and these things need to be said. And remember the brackets, the sandwich, it's all being said in love. So this is why Paul is basically saying to them, okay, you are indwelt and you're adopted. Therefore, verse 17, he said, come out and get rid of them. And then 7-1, get rid of them. Get rid of these false teachers, separate yourself from them and those who follow them. Now, all of this to show that there are actually, I said earlier, that there are existential implications for believing the gospel, where here we actually see that there are ethical implications for believing the gospel. It changes not only what you are, it changes the way you live. As verse 1 says, therefore, since we have these promises, since God has said these things to us, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for Christ. So not only do we try and get rid of the thing that contaminates, we replace it with the thing that purifies. We get rid of the contaminants, the false teaching. You might say the aerosols themselves, the false teachers who spout with hot air this useless gospel that doesn't save and to recognize that actually it's just toxic sin's a pollutant this false teaching is an absolute pollutant to you and your church's life it can it can it oh it's like carbon monoxide it can kill you silently so it kills you and it kills your witness get rid of that then because we were made to be a healthy, strong, powerful witness to the loving God and his eternal son, Jesus, who died for us on the cross. So get rid of the contaminants and the real-life aerosols, the false teachers, and instead perfect holiness out of reverence for Christ. This is what we've been called to. As dwellers of the tem in the temple, the temple itself, Adopted by God, we are to be set apart and holy. And let's not forget this crucial aspect of holiness as we see it in God's word. 
Holiness is often just seen by us, I think, as separate yourself, stay clear, separate yourself from the, the unholy things. You're like, well, that's what Paul is saying here. Yes, but it's not just that. Holiness is always a separation from and a devotion to. That's why Paul's been talking about love in this passage. You get rid of the old loves and you redirect that love to the one you ought to love, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's the same when it comes to holiness. Separation from unbiblical false teaching, devotion instead to God and to becoming like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to. Now, how does this apply for us? What does this separation look like for Charlotte Chapel as we hear Paul's command not to be yoked with unbelievers because we're fundamentally different? Well, I guess the local church being the primary context for genuine partnership reminds us of what we are and what this is. This is not an event to attend nor a spectacle to entertain. It's definitely not that. It's a family to belong to with an eternal work to contribute to. And there's nothing like it on earth as little kind of embassies of the kingdom of God plonked all around the world and we're one of them. And how we represent Christ matters and we best represent Christ first by making sure that we're looking out for each other and the way that we live ourselves, holy, devoted to the Lord, making room in our hearts for each other, taking our glad stand on true doctrine, unashamed, unapologetic, yet gentle in our appeals to believe. Our goal is to see lives transformed through faith in Jesus Christ. We want to encourage healthy partnership, not like the ones we see in here. Healthy partnership. You know, this is why we have church membership. Church membership is not about voting at a church meeting, though that's important. Church membership is the way that we unite together to commit under, well, under the key statement of faith that we hold so that we belong together, constituting ourselves as a family, as a body, and saying, we're going to live for this. And actually, you know, if this guy here decides he's not going to believe that thing, then actually we recognize that it's important to help him see that so he can repent or else remove his membership so that he can really see that he needs to repent. That's why church discipline is important. This is... We unite together under shared convictions, partnering towards a common goal. And that's why we want to exercise love. That's why we want to regather. You can't do this. You can't be what God has called us to be when we don't gather. We appreciate folks taking time to regather. Some folks have good reason for that. But let's make sure we've got good reasons. This passage also has something to say about the partnerships that we enter into, of course. Ecclesiastical partnerships are not directly what Paul has in mind here because they didn't exist back then. But we should be careful about who we form partnerships with. A couple of years ago, you might remember in a church meeting, we actually voted to 
link up with, to partner with, to join with the Evangelical Alliance. Uh, in the past, they have at various times, even here in Edinburgh, invited people who would be commonly held as heretics to preach and would be happy to put their name with that. Though they've changed a lot in recent years. One member, I can't remember exactly who it was, but I remember the question being asked at the church meeting. What happens if the Evangelical Alliance decide that they're going to step away from the true gospel and accept something that's more liberal or something like that? And I, we loved hearing that question. It was a great question because the simple answer to that, is que to that question is, then we'll leave. We'll leave with sadness, but we'll give good reason for why we would leave. Actually, our own church has done something like that before. Back in the 1950s, Charlotte Chapel left the Baptist Union of Scotland, a union that this church actually formed. Why? Because the Baptist Union agreed to partner with the World Council of Churches, who basically adopted this, I guess you could say, a lowest common denominator approach to unity, to unifying churches. But unity in the Bible has never been based on simple relationships. True unity is always founded on true doctrine. Well, when the union agreed to do this, they basically diminished the doctrine of Scripture. And the elders at the time led the church through a very serious consideration of what it meant to stay in the union and what it meant to leave. And this is from the minutes. The Baptist Union Assembly has acknowledged the scriptural inadequacy of the basis of the World Council of Churches. Scriptural inadequacy. And yet, was apparently content to continue affiliation. One of the elders is noted as saying, um, Charlotte Chapel will not commit itself, uh, sorry, the Baptist Union will not commit itself to bow to the final authority of the scriptures. With many of the objectives of the council, and particularly its refugee relief program, the chapel was an entire sympathy. But the basis of faith was too ambiguous. It was inadequate for a united evangelical witness. That was a healthy stand to take, brothers and sisters. That in no small way, I am convinced, has helped to maintain the gospel health of this congregation. Of course, more recently, the same was true for the Tron Church in Glasgow. When the Church of Scotland voted to allow same-sex marriage, there were those within the denomination who felt that this was a break away from Scripture, and it is, and reasoned that it was time to leave. Willie Philip of the Tron said, where then does this leave our church fellowship in St. George's Tron, alas? It seems greatly at odds with the clearly expressed official will of the denomination to which we are affiliated. But notwithstanding the deliberations and decisions of the highest court of our denomination, we are simply not at liberty to walk away from Christ and his gospel or depart from the historic foundations of our church or separate from communion with Orthodox Christian believers globally. To do so would be to sin against God and sin against our Christian brothers and sisters worldwide, many of whom face great persecution for their adherence to the truth. This we cannot do. We must obey God rather than men. Praise God for that stance. Christ 
is honored by that stand. It came at great cost to them. Personal hurt, but also three million pounds. But association, friends, with mismatched, unbiblical partnerships, association is compromise. Separation is costly. People will call us bigots, claim that we promote disunity, but we can do as Paul does. Love much. Say with frankness and integrity, the word is clear, the gospel is true, we encourage repentance, here we stand, we can't believe or do or commend anything else. And we keep going, making room in our hearts for gospel partnerships, ridding ourselves of unholy associations and united together as one people in Christ to be his people, to do his work, because that is good.